0: Today is April 20th. In 1957, a replica of the original Mayflower which transported Pilgrims to the New World, the Mayflower II, recreated the original voyage and set sail from Brixton, England across the Atlantic arriving in Plymouth, Massachusetts on June 13, 1957. The Mayflower was the ship that transported the English separatists, better known as the Pilgrims, from a site near the Mayflower Steppes in Plymouth, England to Plymouth, Massachusetts which would become the capital of Plymouth Colony in 1620. There were 102 passengers and a crew of 25 to 30. The vessel left England on the 6th of September, 1620, and after a grueling 66-day journey marked by disease, which claimed two lives, the ship dropped anchor just inside the hook tip of Cape Cod, or Provincetown Harbor, on the 11th of November. The Mayflower was originally destined for the mouth of the Hudson River near present-day New York City at the northern edge of England's Virginia Colony which itself was established with the 17 or 1607 Jamestown settlement. However, the Mayflower went off course as the winter approached and remained in Cape Cod Bay. On March 21, 1621, all surviving passengers who had inhabited the ship during the winter moved ashore at Plymouth. And on April 5th, the Mayflower, a privately commissioned vessel, returned to England. In 1623, a year after the death of Captain Christopher Jones, the Mayflower was most likely dismantled for scrap lumber in Rotherhithe, London. The Mayflower has a famous place in American history as a symbol of early European colonization of the future United States. With a religion oppressed by the English church and government, English dissenters called Pilgrims who comprised about half of the passengers on the ship desired a life where they could practice their religion freely. This symbol of religious freedom resonates in the U.S. society and the story of the Mayflower is a staple of any American history textbook. Americans whose roots are traceable back to New England often believe themselves to be descended from the Mayflower passengers. After World War II, an effort began to reenact the voyage of the Mayflower. With cooperation between Project Mayflower and Plymouth Plantation, an accurate replica of the original, designed by naval architect William A. Baker, was built by Upham Shipbuilders in Brixham, and launched September 22, 1956 from South Devon, England, and set sail on April 20, 1957, captained by Alan Villiers, the voyage ended in Plymouth Harbor after 55 days on June 13, to a great acclaim. The ship is moored to this day at State Pier at Plymouth, Massachusetts and is open to visitors as part of the Plymouth Plantation exhibition. In 1916, the first game at Wigman Park, renamed Wrigley Field in 1926 after William Wrigley bought controlling interest in the Cubs, home of the Chicago Cubs between the Chicago Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds. Everything was different about Wrigley's field that first game. The classic scoreboard, the ivy-clad outfield walls, the aroma of hot dogs and stale old style, Wrigley Field and the Cubs are synonymous at this point. The stadium's famous marquee proudly welcomes you to the home of the Chicago Cubs, and it feels like it always will. But nearly two years before the Cubs ever played their first game at Clark & Edison, on this day in 1914, another team christened in one of baseball's meccas. In some ways, it is a forgotten part of the history of Northside baseball. After all, who remembers the Chicago chi and their power-hitting center fielder, Dutch Zwilling? Wrigley Field opened in 1914 under the original name Wiegman Park after millionaire Charles Wiegman paid $1.92 million for a 99-year lease on the land. The stadium was built in just two months to be the home of the Chicago chi which were part of a major league baseball competitor formed by Wigman called the Federal League. The Chi-Feds, also known Later known as the Wales before the Federal League shut down, played their first game at Wigman Park on April 23, 1914, against the Kansas City Packers. Catcher Art Wilson, who had also brief- briefly played for the Cubs in 1916 and 17, had a huge day with two home runs and a walk in four plate appearances. The Chi Feds jumped out to an 8-0 lead and route to a 9-1 victory. Led by player manager Joe Tinker, a future Hall of Famer for his playing days with the Cubs, they go on to an 87-67 season. A year later, they'd win the championship in the Federal League's final season. A lot was different about attending Wrigley Field back then, beyond just the name of the venue and the team playing in it. There was no marquee, ivy, scoreboard, or upper deck. None of that would be added for at least a decade. Fans were allowed to smoke anywhere they pleased. World War I had not begun, and women couldn't vote. It was a much different world. And then there were the names. Oh, those glorious, old-timey names. Rolly Zeter, Dutch Zwilling, Claude Hendricks, Chet Chadbourne, Duke Kenworthy, Chief Johnson. Not only were fans out there rooting for a team called the chi Feds, which is just Chicago and Federal slammed together, their team had guys named Dutch and Rolly taking on players named Chet, Duke, and Chief. It was beautiful. After the closure of the Federal League following the 1915 season, Wigman was part of a group of investors that purchased the Cubs and moved them to Wigman Park in 1916. William Wrigley Jr. took over control of the clubs in 1919 and renamed the stadium to Cubs Park starting with a 20 season. The Bears played their first game there in 1921 and would stay through 1970 when they moved to Soldier Field. In 1926, the park was finally renamed Wrigley Field before the beginning of a major project to renovate the stadium. An upper deck and the now-famous bleachers were added to expand capacity to roughly 40,000. The marquee went up outside, in the 1930s, the scoreboard and ivy were added to round out the iconic aesthetics of the Northside Park. It would be over 50 years from there until lights were added. Now, over a century after its opening, Wrigley Field and the surrounding neighborhood would look totally foreign to someone who attended back then. So much of what's become unmistakable about Cubs Stadium was added years after the Feds played their first game there. It's been a long, fascinating history for one of the best places to watch a ball game. Finally, in 2010, an explosion and fire aboard the Deepwater Horizon oil drilling rig in the Gulf of Mexico approximately 50 miles off the Louisiana coast killed 11 people and triggered the largest offshore oil spill in American history. The rig had been in final phases of drilling an exploratory well for BP, the British oil giant. By the time the well was capped three months later, an estimated 4.9 million barrels or around 206 million gallons of crude oil had poured into the Gulf. The disaster began when a surge of natural gas from the well shot up a riser pipe to the rig's platform, where it set off a series of explosions and massive blaze. Of the 126 people on board, nearly 400-foot-long Deepwater Horizon, 11 workers perished, and 17 others were seriously injured. The fire burned for more than a day before the Deepwater Horizon, constructed for $350 million in 2001, sank on the 22nd of April in some 5,000 feet of water. Before evacuating the Deepwater Horizon, crew members tried unsuccessfully to activate a safety device called a blowout preventer, which was designed to shut off the flow of oil from the well in an emergency. Over the next three months, a variety of techniques were tried in an effort to plug the hemorrhaging well, which was spewing thousands of barrels of oil into the Gulf each day. Finally, on July 15, BP announced that the well had been temporarily capped, and on September 19th, after cement was injected into the well to permanently seal it, the federal government declared the well dead. By that point, however, oil from the spill had reached coastal areas of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, which would inflict a heavy toll on the region's economy, particularly the fishing and tourism industries, and wildlife. Scientists say that the full extent of the environmental damage could take decades to assess. In 2011, A National Investigative Commission released a report concluding that the Deepwater Horizon disaster was foreseeable and preventable and the result of human error, engineering mistakes, and management failures, along with ineffective government regulation. In November of 2012, BP agreed to plead guilty to 14 criminal charges brought against it by the U.S. Justice Department and paid $4.5 billion in fines. Additionally, the Justice Department charged two BP managers who supervised testing on the well with manslaughter and another company executive with making false statements about the size of the spill. In July of 2015, BP agreed to pay $18.7 billion in fines. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. The PeopleHistory.com Mayflower Replica Sets Sale at lets-tour-england.com, Wrigley Field, the first game, at Chicago.Suntimes.com and Deepwater Horizon Explodes at History.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.